This is Revision Church Atlanta Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Wesley Knight, the lead pastor here at Revision Church Atlanta. Here at RCA, we leverage the power of prayer, personal influence, community development, and love to empower transformation in Christ. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Thank you for tuning in. Well, there is a word from the Lord today. And it comes from John chapter 8, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 8. In the New Testament, John, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, writes this account of the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask those of you in the building to, to stand with me as we get ready to read. You can just play something under me there as we get ready, as we read the scripture. <clears throat> John chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. Did I say I missed y'all? <laughs> I missed y'all, church. Um, and I hope you pray for me. Uh, today, like my wife said, if I cough, don't get scared. That's just the residual kind of COVID uh, thing that happens after COVID. You get this little cough, but y'all going to pray me through. Amen, church? Amen. That means don't make me work too hard today. All right? Don't make me work. I need to hear you so I know I'm getting through. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 from the English Standard Version. You could read at home or in this place, whatever version you may like, but we're reading from, I'm reading from the ESV, and this is what it says. If you're ready, shout yes. John chapter 8 says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Verse six, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want to bring your attention back to this verse 8. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing 
before him. As the Spirit leads today, I want to simply preach from the subject, shameless. Shameless. Now, Father, speak to your people, both in this place and at home in their own places. If we ever needed the Lord before, Lord, we sure do need you now. I need you now. So put your words in my mouth and let your people hear your voice. And may we be forever changed. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's not really about this woman. If you've been in church for any amount of time, even around church, or even heard a preacher preach, this is one of the stories you hear. The woman caught in adultery. But this story is not really about this woman. In fact... When she is dragged out into the crowd in front of Jesus, it's not really about the woman. I don't know what it is about church folk, religious folk, that we like calling other people out. Hmm. Oh, y'all are awake this morning. I don't know what it is about us that we like to drag people online. That when somebody messes up, we have to double up and pile on and continue to uh, enumerate uh, all of their faults. But I'm telling you, this ain't about this woman. Stay with me. She is the center of their attention. But she is not the center of their intention. They dragged her out before Jesus, but they did it for an ulterior motive. It was not really about her act. It was not really about her mistake. It wasn't even really about her own agency to do something outside of the will of God. Hear me. People will use your situation to accomplish their own selfish ambition. Okay, all right. I told y'all not to make me work too hard today. Uh, I'll say it again. People will use your situation to accomplish their own selfish ambition. Notice the woman in the story is not really the issue in the story. She is a pawn in a deadly game between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because your Bible says, you just read it, that they did this to trap Jesus. To bring some charge against Jesus. So that they could have power over the people that were now following Jesus. Mm. Um, they were jealous of Jesus' authority. 
For the Bible said that they, the people wondered aloud. They spoke aloud and said, we've never heard a teacher teach with such authority. The Pharisees were jealous for they never drew those kinds of crowds. The jealousies and Sadducees were jealous. They were in their feelings because Jesus was stealing their attention. They were upset because Jesus had a larger platform. He was reaching more people. And so what they did was they used the woman's issue, I'm going somewhere, as a pawn so that they would be able to get power over the people. Y'all not with me? Uh, let me come a little bit closer. She's dragged out and her dignity is compromised so that these men can accomplish their goal of having power over the people. You see, this is not about the woman. It's about their power over the people and they use her as a pawn. This is one of the tragedies of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is one of the tragedies. Understand, it is not about the women and God knows it ain't about the babies. It's not about these unborn children. It's not as if all these evangelical Christians really care about all these kids. Because if they did, they would deal with all of the black and brown kids stuck in children's services. If they cared about all the babies, they would look after all these kids running the streets with no food, no home, no love, and no community. It ain't about the babies. They took away the right to abortion as a pawn in a deadly game to get power over the people because if they can tell you what to do with your body then next they can tell you where to worship then next they can tell you what day to worship then next they can tell you if you should even have the right to even have sex Understand that men in power always use women's issues as a pawn to gain power over the people. Ooh, I'm preaching already. And those powerful anti-abortion groups and lobbyists are using this issue to accomplish something else. This agenda of Christian nationalism. I don't have time today. I'll go there next month. But Christian nationalism. It, the agenda is to make sure that mm, the principles of the kingdom of God are legislated by force. It ain't about the babies. It's about power. And it's not about this woman. These Pharisees could care less that she was caught in adultery. Please don't miss that most religious people don't really, most, huh, let me say it this way, most superficial religious people, most people who wear the camouflage of religion don't really care about sin or its effects on you. 
all they care about is if they can exploit your mistake. Holy Ghost, you better preach. So that it makes them look more holy. This woman, it's not about her. It's about them. They drag her out before Jesus. And and this woman, if if y'all still with me, shout yes. If you're still with me in the chat, just say yes. The woman is dragged out. The Bible says, caught in the very act of adultery. (sighs) Somehow, these Pharisees were able to catch her in the very act of adultery. It's not like they heard about it. It's not like they got some message from someone that this adulterous affair occurred last week. No, somehow they were in the right place at the right time to catch her in the very act of adultery. Of course, the man is nowhere to be found for she was not having adultery with herself. There was a person there, but he's nowhere around. Only she is dragged out in front of Jesus. She does not refute the charges. She has no defense. She stands there before Jesus and her accusers in her sin? Uh, That's where we automatically go when we read this story. She's standing there in her sin. We focus on the fact that she is caught in the act of adultery. So we focus on her sin, but she is not standing in her sin. Stay with me today. I want to challenge you today, push you today. I want to free some people today because although she has sinned, she's not standing before Jesus in her sin. The sin has already been committed, past tense. The act has already been completed, past tense. She's not in the bed with her lover in front of Jesus. That's in the past. She's not standing in her sin. She's standing in her shame. Somebody put it in the chat. Shame. Oh God. Holy Ghost is going to free some people today. She's standing in her shame. Watch this because shame is always associated with sin. But its effects last much longer. The Bible says in the very beginning when Adam and Eve, the first human beings created by the almighty omnipotent God, that when they first disobeyed God, ate of the fruit and sinned, the Bible says they became ashamed. The act of sin had already been completed, but shame makes you hide from the one you need the most. She's standing in her shame. I want to talk to you about shame today because most of you are unaware that you struggle with it. Hmm. See, shame, according to Brene Brown, the 
world-renowned researcher and sociologist and author and speaker, Brene Brown, in her book, The Atlas of the Heart, uh, as well as other books that she's written, defines shame as this. Shame is when you say, I am wrong. Not that I've done wrong. I'm wrong. Shame is when you focus on self, watch this, rather than your behavior. The result is feeling, she says, the result is feeling flawed and unworthy of love, unworthy of belonging and connection. Oh God, somebody need to hear this today. And shame grips a lot of us, unbeknownst to us, because it is insidious. It, it hides under, uh, just under the surface. I want you to see something. You can stand and still be in shame. The woman's head, she's, we don't know if her head is bowed, but what we do know is she's standing in front of Jesus and her accusers, and some of us may think the fact that we're still standing doesn't mean we don't wrestle with shame. But you can stand and still have shame. You can go to work and still have shame. You can come to church and still have shame. You can open your Bible and read it every day and still have, am I talking to anybody here? You can do your Bible plan in the morning and still have shame. You can go through your devotion and still have shame. And here's the thing about shame. Shame, and I talk about this in my most recent book, Still Thirsty. That's right, shameless plug. Y'all need to get it. In Still Thirsty, I, I, I define something a little bit different than what Brene Brown says, but related to, get this, that shame is the practice of internalizing and personalizing your mistakes so that you can't distinguish between what you did and who you are. Whew. This woman is standing there in her shame and that's why you don't know her name. She's just known as the woman who's caught in adultery. I used to preach that sin will steal your identity. Because when you look through the Bible, those who are identified as sinners, most of them you'll discover you don't know their names. However, now that I know better, I understand it's not sin that steals your identity, your self-awareness, the confidence in who you are. Shame does that. Shame makes you so identify with your mistakes that you forget who you really are. And I want to help you to understand and to identify where shame is in your life. Because I can hear somebody right now on your couch. You're saying, Pastor, I hear you, but that doesn't apply to me because I feel pretty good about myself. I don't tell myself I should be ashamed of myself. Well, shame works undercover. Shame comes in, uh, in, in camouflage. You've got to understand we all have the capacity and propensity to carry shame especially if you grew up in the church 
Because the church is in a real sense a shame culture. I don't have time. I'm not going to get through all of this today. That's why we're going to do part two next week. But, but I got to tell you, the reason we struggle with shame is because we were taught it in Sabbath school. When, when we called on, on that child to read or to recite the memory verse and they couldn't do it and we called on the boy beside her and he was able to recite it and we said, see Susie, I don't know why you couldn't do it, but he did it. We taught shame. We all have the capacity and propensity to carry shame. And just in case you still ain't feeling me, like this ain't for you, save me a seat. I'm going to sit right down beside you. Because shame is when you tell yourself something is wrong with you, sister, because you can't get pregnant. Shame is when you tell yourself you're not good enough because you didn't get the promotion. Shame is when you tell yourself you're not a good person because you talked about somebody behind their back. Still ain't with me? I'm coming closer. Shame is when you tell yourself you are just like your mean father because you lost your temper and yelled at your kids. Shame is when a man, I'm coming closer, loses his job and he tells himself he's not a good provider for his family and he can't hold his head up high. I'm talking to some brothers and he can't walk with his chest out because he's so identified his lack with his identity. Shame is when you step outside your marriage and have an affair and you tell yourself you're not worthy of being forgiven or loved by your spouse. Shame is when you don't pass the boards and you can't get your license to practice and you feel dumb and inadequate. Shame. Am I down your row yet? Shame is what kids feel when their parents get a divorce and the kids feel it's their fault and that's why they asked you, uh, Daddy, was it my fault? That's shame. It will rob you of your peace, steal your joy, and destroy your dignity. And the worst thing you could ever say to a person is to tell them, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Because shame, watch this, shame grows in the environment of judgment. I'm still in the text. She's standing there, not in her sin. She's sinned, past tense. As she's standing before Jesus and her accusers, she's standing in her shame. And her shame is growing. How do I know? I'm glad you asked. Because her accusers are hurling, are hurling accusations at her in the presence of Jesus. Shame needs judgment in order for it to grow. And this is why the next thing that happens after we are in shame is condemnation. Can I teach it before I preach it? Condemnation comes after shame because condemnation is the practice of punishment for wrong actions. It's the practice of declaring a judgment or a sentence on someone. When a criminal is sentenced, that is condemnation. Most of us 
don't need people to condemn us because we do it to ourselves. And that's why so many of you can't come out of the incarceration of your own imagination because all you keep doing is replaying how you messed up oh, preach Holy Ghost what you did, how stupid you were for doing it again all you play back as you try to worship is all the inadequacies all the inconsistencies and all your hypocrisies am I preaching to anybody in the building where you want to pray but you can't pray because shame talks you out of it you want to worship but you ain't free to worship because shame talks you out of it you keep thinking about what you've done and what you've done has followed you into your future. And it's self-condemnation. May I suggest to you that this woman has double condemnation for she is condemning herself while the accusers are hurling condemnation at her. And self-condemnation is a prison we put ourselves in. It's like lighting yourself on fire and then wondering where the smoke is coming from. Self-condemnation, that's why you can't have healthy relationships because you condemned yourself to dysfunctional ones because that's what you think you deserve. That's why you can't really enjoy even when you have success because you condemned yourself to past mistakes. So watch this. You don't deserve to celebrate when you have a success. I'm talking to somebody today. This real talk right here. And that's why you don't experience joy. and uh, Because your mistakes make, uh, make you ineligible for joy. Your sins make you ineligible to give God free worship. And that's why so many church people don't know how to even smile. Have no sense of levity. Have no sense of joy. Because you are self confined by your self-condemnation but she's in the right place uh, can I turn the corner now um, she's standing in her shame but she's not only standing in her shame she's standing in front of Jesus now, 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 you didn't shout like you should because perhaps you don't understand what's about to happen. She's standing there with accusers behind Jesus. Can you see it? Jesus standing between uh, her and her accusers. She's standing in shame, but Jesus is standing between her and her condemnation. You ain't getting it. Let me do it a different way. She's standing in her shame thinking of all the ways she's unworthy all the ways she doesn't deserve grace but here is Jesus standing between her and her is there anybody here who's glad that whenever your accusers come for you whenever your consequences are coming for you whenever the circumstances you brought on yourself are coming for you that Jesus stands between you and your accusation here it is. Jesus stoops down, the Bible says, and starts writing. Now, please don't miss this. Our understanding is that Jesus stooped down in the sand and wrote, and the accusers left. Let me show you how sometimes uh, 
overhearing a story is not the same thing as reading a story for yourself. Because the way you've heard the story in your imagination and also in mine before I read it again with fresh eyes is that Jesus stoops down and starts writing and based on what he writes, the Pharisees leave. But look back at the story. That's not exactly how it happens. The exegetical key to our revelation in this story is that in verse 6 and 7, it tells us that Jesus actually wrote twice. You're going to get it in a minute. <laughs> that he didn't just stoop down one time and write. Oh God. The significance is he wrote twice. The first time he writes, he is writing not for the benefit of the Pharisees. How do you know this preacher? Because in verse 7, the Bible says, after he writes the first time, the Pharisees continue to ask him about her sentence of condemnation. Oh God, is somebody getting this? He stoops down and writes... And the Pharisees are still there. Which means that what he wrote in the ground, on the ground, wasn't for the Pharisees the first time. Because they're still there. In fact, after they see what he writes the first time, they press the issue. It's right there in verse 7. And they say, but Jesus, what are you going to do about this woman? Here is the celebration for me. <laughs> that Jesus writes the first time, not a message for the Pharisees. Jesus writes the first time, a message to the woman. Because she's standing in her shame. And I believe when Jesus stooped down, he wrote something like this. Hmm. You are not what you've done. You are not what you did. The totality of your identity is not based on your iniquity. You are more than your mistakes. Ah, oh, y'all missing the shout. Because when he writes it, that's why the Pharisees don't leave. Because religious folk always get angry when guilty people get grace. So they push the issue because they saw what Jesus wrote. Now Jesus writes this, watch this, because he's got to get to the woman first before he deals with the accusers. Because Jesus has got to get rid of your shame so that you can be able to accept his grace. Oh God. And so he writes it so he can cancel out the curse of shame. He says, I know what they're saying about you, but what did I write about you? I know what they're accusing you of, but what did I write? Y'all missing that. What did I write about you? I know they caught you in the act, but 
what did I write about you? Don't y'all know what he wrote about you? He says, though your sins be as scarlet, he shall make them white as snow. What did he write about you? He wrote that uh, no weapon formed against you is going to prosper. What did he write about you? If God be for you, what accusers dare be against? What did he write about you? That you are not just a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. I need about 20 folk in here to shout unto God to praise him that it doesn't matter what they said about you. It matters what he wrote about you. And by the way, Jesus never writes in ink. He always writes in blood. When he went to the cross, he wrote your name down. And I don't care what they called you. The only thing that matters is what he wrote. And if you're going to get free from shame, you got to understand it ain't about what they said. It's not even about what you did. It's about what he wrote. Turn to somebody, keep your mask on, but turn to somebody and say, it's what he wrote. <laughs> it's, what he, it's not what you say. It's not even what you saw. Whew. He writes it down. The religious folk get mad. They press the issue. Now, it is interesting that the Pharisees continued to ask for a sentence. They said, Jesus, you got to do something because that's not enough for you to write and tell her that she is not what she did. It's not enough. And then Jesus says, those of you, the one of you holding those stones, the, the one of you that has never sinned like this woman, you be the first one in line to cast a stone. And then... He does what we've always heard in the story. He bends down and begins to write their stuff. He writes a second time. First time, it's to get the woman out of shame. Second time is to expose the accusers so that they could understand their need of grace. Now, now understand when he starts writing... The Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they start leaving. <laughs> um, now, now uh, I want you to get this. When the Pharisees brought her out here, you got to go back to verse 2 to understand what's happening here. Because I always thought that this was just between the woman, Jesus, and the Pharisees. That those were the only people there. But verse 2 says that there was a crowd. It says all the people at the temple were there. Mm, don't miss this. This means that all the people at the temple gathered around this woman. The Pharisees did it publicly to shame the woman and trap Jesus. But when the Pharisees made her sin public... They also made her redemption public. Be very careful when you try to pull and drag people's sin out into the public because you're just going to set them up for a public 
public demonstration of God's grace. Is there anybody here that knows that God will flip it on your... Y'all not getting this. The crowd is there. They accuse her. Jesus says, I just told her she's not what she did. But when he bends down the second time to write, he writes, but I know what y'all did. I know how you exploited, as he's writing in the sand, the people at the temple. And I know, Mr. Pharisee, how you embezzled temple funds. And I know, Pharisee, that you know this woman because you were with her last month. That's why you knew where she would be doing what she's doing. And the reason the oldest one leaves is because he's got the most to lose. And the, the Bible says as he writes, they leaves. And that's why you don't let nobody talk down to you. Don't let anybody look down on you. Don't let anybody judge you or condemn you because when Jesus starts writing, he writes grace for you and judgment for your accusers. I, I, I'm almost through. Watch this. Verse 9 says something really interesting because as they're leaving, the Bible says why they're leaving. Notice that it says in verse 9, when the Pharisees heard it. Okay, okay. We think when we hear this story that Jesus simply wrote their sins. The Pharisees themselves looked at it and said, oh, that's me. Let me get out of here. But the Bible says in verse 9 very clearly, this is why you got to read the Bible for yourself, that uh, when they heard it, hmm, what does that mean, Gabe? They, uh, uh, when they heard it, what does that mean, Durant? That, that when, they, when they heard it, remember a crowd is there. So the crowd is witnessing Jesus write the sins of the accusers in the sand. And then the crowd starts reciting and reading aloud the sins of the Pharisees it's not that they read it your Bible says they heard the people and they started leaving because God will flip your shame into an opportunity to humble those who came against you so that he can turn oh thank you Jesus your mistake into an opportunity for his mercy and Jesus is standing there and now no one else is there because the crowd has followed the Pharisees talking about their sins it's just now Jesus and the woman I'll finish this next week. Can I tell you one more thing? The antidote for shame is grace. Undeserved kindness. Which reverses the curse of shame that tells me I'm not worthy. In that moment that Jesus is standing there, the power, we'll get to it next week, what he says to her as they're in this intimate space together. But the power in this moment is that he's standing in 
front of her without a stone. The only person qualified to stone her that day was the only one standing there when everybody left. You ought to praise God that when everybody left, when everybody judged, when everybody had something to say about you, I don't hear nobody, I don't see you in the chat, when everybody left you, that Jesus was still standing there and you ought to praise God, he's standing there empty handed. There's no stone in his hand. And I think the reason there's no stone in his hand, I think the reason he leaves his hand empty and open, I think the reason he didn't pick up the accuser's stone to destroy her right there was because soon after that account, he would go the hill called Golgotha. He would climb up on a tree and those empty hands would be nailed to a rugged cross. Hey, thank you, Jesus. And those same empty hands would bleed blood to cover her past sins. I thank God today that shame can be removed because his his hands are empty. He could have killed you, but he didn't. He could have stoned you, but he didn't. He could have taken away your breath, but he didn't. He could have caused you not to wake up this morning, but he didn't. I'm so glad that he gets me up. I'm so glad he still shows me grace. I'm so glad that he keeps giving me mercy after mercy after mercy new every morning. I don't get stale mercy but every morning there's new mercy to match last night's mistakes. Is there anybody here? Is there anybody watching who's grateful for his empty hands? his hands are empty not only because his hands bled for you but his hands are empty to receive you just as you are the accusers are gone the crowd left and Jesus stands there with stones all around him and he will not pick one of them up if you think about the amount of times he could have picked up a stone for your situation the amount of times watch this you used his breath to do your thing the times we got up and we never acknowledged him made our own decisions made our own mess then blamed it on him and he still didn't pick up a stone thank God for his empty hand 
thank God for the stones at his feet. Because that means I still get another chance. If you're here and you need another chance, I want you to stand with me. If you don't think you need another chance, that's all right. But if you're here and you think you need another chance, I... I'm grateful that the stones stayed at his feet. I'm grateful that his hands are empty because it means no matter what I do, I don't have to walk in shame. I am not what I've done. My identity is not my iniquity. My actions are not the sum total of who I am. I am not what they say. I am not what I've done. I am what he wrote about me. Do you know Jesus is still writing in the sand to you? He's telling you, I love you just like you are. He's telling you that you, you, you are about to overcome this. He's telling you, I know you struggled a lot with this. But you're about to get the victory over this. And in the meantime, you deserve joy. In the meantime, you don't have to beat yourself up. And God knows you don't have to work hard for what I already give. You deserve peace. Thank God the stones are still at his feet. His hands are empty. To receive you. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Those of you who are with us online, I want you to join this because I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray that God begin to lift this curse, this self-induced curse of shame that we stop beating ourselves up and start being kinder to ourselves. Yes, even in the midst of the mess of our own mistake that we lose this bad religion that tells us that when you mess up you shouldn't pray and when you mess up you shouldn't call on God and when you mess up you don't need to come to church or go to worship the devil is a liar don't pay attention to what your accusers are saying even if it's your own brain pay attention to what he wrote about you he says I love you more than you can ever understand Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for this woman. Oh God, we won't just call her the woman caught in adultery for she cannot indeed be defined by what she did. She is defined by what you did on the cross for her and for every one of us. For we are her. We've been caught in the act. You saw us. You were there. You, you heard the conversation. You, you read the tweet. You were in the secret meeting. You were right in the room. And yet you did not pick up a stone. But you gave us another chance. Thank you. Today, because of your grace. Because of your grace. God, we believe that we deserve to live in peace. To live in joy to live in love, to live in faith. I pray right now for every person in this building and every person under the sound of my voice online, God, release us from shame as you release that precious woman. And may we stand in victory. May we stand 
in confidence. May we stand in strength. Father, even now, someone needs to make a decision for you to come out of shame into salvation. To come out of shame and come out of condemnation so that they can move into salvation. Even right now, if you're here today, you're saying, I, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. You're online. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to come out of shame and come into salvation. I believe I deserve connection. I deserve belonging. I deserve love and joy and peace and everything God has for me. I want to give my life to Jesus. If you're watching online or here in the building, you can be able to answer this appeal by just, we'll use the QR code. We're just going to put the QR code on the screen for those of you who are online and even those of you in the building. You just open your phone app. You just open your phone app. Don't take a picture. Just open your phone app. Grab your devices. If you're making this decision today, you open that up. Just put it up towards the QR code and you just follow the cues as you fill out your e-card to make this decision today. If you want to be a member of Revision Church Atlanta and you're here today or you're watching online, you can do the same thing. If you're here in the building, let me see your hands. If you if you want to give your life to Jesus or you want to join Revision Church Atlanta, we're about to finish praying. But if you're here today, just raise your hand. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to join the church. I believe that Jesus loves me just as I am. And just as I am, I come. If you're here today in the building, if you're online, you're filling that out. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the stones at your feet and your hands that are empty to receive us. Now, Lord, may we go forward not in shame, but in confidence that we belong to you. We thank you. We love you. And we cannot wait to see you in Jesus' name. Let everybody say amen. Come on, amen. Put your hands together and praise God today for the word of the Lord. Come on, if you heard the word of the Lord, let's praise him. God bless you. Stay with us. We're almost through. We're about to worship. If you are being blessed by this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give through our website at revisionchurchatlanta.org slash give. Or if you're local to Atlanta, Georgia, sign up to join a revision volunteer team by texting CREW to 833-406-0775. That's CREW, C-R-E-W, to 833-406-0775. We hope you have a phenomenal week.